Good morning. morning. How you guys doing this morning? Good, great. Yeah, okay. (laughs) I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. Let me start with prayer and then we'll jump in. Sound good? Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this day, another day of life, another day to be here with one another um, and just enjoy one another's company to learn about you too in the process. I pray, Father, that the words here, that we would take them to heart and um, live differently because of that, because of you, because of what you've done. Um, help us to live it outside the walls, Lord. We love you very much. It's in your son's name. Amen. Amen. I want to start with a question. Question. So you're going to talk to the person on your right, part, person on your left. Is that, yeah, okay. Um, so anyways, what I want you to do then, answer this question. Here it is. If you could disinvent one thing, what would it be? To the left, to the right, Go. I like this. All right. What do you got? What is one thing you would disinvent if you could? Video games. Video games. games. Gary, how do you feel about that? Eh, whatever. Who cares? What else? What? 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 That's a Van Hooser. We saw it. We know who you are. Why mustard, man? I love mustard. Oh, man. Right to the heart. What else? Wait, wait, try it again, over here. Mice. Knives? Mice. Oh, mice. Mice or knives? Mice. Ah, let's get rid of both, let's see what happens. What else? TV. TV, TV. You haven't said the one I'd expect, and I've heard every servant. What? Cell phones, I heard that one, and the internet, which I thought was interesting. Social media, social media, I've heard that one. All right, let's flip the question. What is one invention you couldn't live without? To the left, to the right, go. Yes, sir. Well played, man. Well played. (laughs) Oh, dang. That was good. (laughs) Yeah, ketchup, baby. All right. Outside of ketchup, what would you say is one thing you couldn't live without? My cell phone. You're trying to get rid of my cell phone. I can't live without my cell phone. Now, wait, who said that? I did. Uh-huh, that's what I figured. Okay. What do you got in the back? I see you waving your hand. A car? Car. That's a good one. Nice job. I like that. What else? Vaccines. Chick-fil-A. Woo! God's chicken, baby. You know I can't live without that. Air conditioning. I said electricity and indoor plumbing. Yeah, everybody's, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, what was I thinking? Those are the ones. So here's the thing. Yeah. Eh. Um, it depends on the brand, I would say. Uh, anyways, the, what, what got me there, I was actually, we've been talking, we're doing this Christmas series, and Steve talked about last week the Christmas, the revelation of Christmas, right? This week we're talking about the incarnation of Christmas. So I was reading through the gospel accounts, and I came upon, if you go to John 4, in John 4, Jesus meets this woman at the well. I never would have thought, when I'm talking about incarnation, this would have came up. 
But when it hit me, it just kind of took me aback, and I want to show you what that was, okay? John chapter 4, Jesus encounters woman at the well. In John chapter 4, he sits down in the well. He doesn't sit down in the well. That changes the story. Um, He sits down next to the well, and the woman comes, and he asks the woman, will you please get me a drink? And this Samaritan woman says, how can you talk to me? You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. We don't talk. So, no, I ain't going to get you no drink. I appreciate that. Thanks. Um, And Jesus says this to her, and, and don't miss this. This is in John 4, verse 10. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. In other words, if I know what the gift is and who the gift giver is, then that's radically going to change not only my answer, but my life. And as I looked at that in sight of the whole gospel, It seemed like those are two very big things that we, if you're a believer, need to get under grasp. We need to understand what those are. Who is Jesus and what's the gift he offers? Why? Because we have to go, just like the the disciple here, and tell the world. If you can't answer those, we need to make sure, well, that's a problem. We need to make sure you can. So that's what we're going to look at today. It's going to get a little heady. You're going to take notes. I'll try to slow it down. we got a lot to cover, though. All right, so we're asking the question, who is Jesus? And what's the gift? Remember, this is one answer that changes everything. Look at the Samaritan woman, changed her life. Look at a guy named Paul. Paul was persecuting the church. He was taking people, he would take them back to Jerusalem, believers back to Jerusalem to kill them. And yet, he becomes one of the most adamant defenders of the faith and wrote half of the New Testament. When you encounter who Jesus is and the gift he offers, it radically changes your entire worldview. Changes everything. So let's look at it. The question we're asking is, who is Jesus and what does he have to offer? I'm going to put up here on the screen, this is a list of some of the names of Jesus, right? And every one of these is significant. It tells us a character trait or characteristic about Jesus. So look at those real quick. I'm not going to go into too much about them, but each one of those is important. One of the ones, I didn't say this before, but you guys, you're the last one, so we're going to give it to you. Bread of life. I like that one. Bread of life from Bethlehem. That's, that's where the bread is. It's where they make it. Pretty cool. So here we go. All right. Who is Jesus? We're going to look at the one that says he is the word. The word. John 1, 1 through 5, it says this. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Here, again, you're, you're, if you take, take the word out of that and put Jesus there. In the beginning was Jesus. Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. When we talk incarnation, we are saying that God, or Jesus, is fully God and fully man. Hard to wrap our minds around. Let's go here. Go to John 1, 14. It says this, continuing on. The word became flesh. God became flesh. Colossians 1, 15. The son is the image of the invisible God. In other words, the son helps us know who God is. Colossians 1.19, God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. Colossians 2.9, 
For in Christ, all of the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. So when you come to a Christian doctrine, this is what we believe, that Jesus was fully man and fully God. The reason that's important, all right, Adam, you're up there, right? John 1, 1, let's see it. I want you, that first line, I want you to make sure you know what that line says. In the beginning, where have we heard that before? Genesis. So in the beginning of the Bible, when God's creating, he's doing a new thing, right? John is drawing on that same language to say, even right here, right now, he's doing a new thing. Don't miss that. The other part I want you to get is it says this, the word was with God. That next phrase, in the word was God. You gotta hang on to that one. The reason why I had a Jehovah Witness come to my door and they used this text to prove to me that God and Jesus are not on the same playing field. They inserted a word into the text. So if you, if you read it, it says, and the word was, they would say, a God. And what they did is they took Jesus and went this way with it. That's not Christian doctrine. And this is where I would say to every one of you, we've got to know our text. Do you know that the highest converts to Jehovah Witness and Mormonism, you know where they come from? Christianity. It's because we sound the same. You've got to know your text. This is a subtle one. Don't, don't forget that one, Okay. So here it's saying, this is Jesus. He is God in the flesh. God in the flesh. Now what I want to do, and if you look at the purpose of John's gospel, John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. John 20, 30 through 31, says this. This is the point of John's gospel. It says, Jesus performed many signs in the presence of his disciples, but they're not all recorded here. Good to know that. But he says this, the ones that are, they're written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The whole point of John's gospel is for you to know who the gift giver is and what the gift is. Actually, the point of most of the gospels, we already said that, right? So what I want to do, and this is what we got to know, if those two things matter so much to us, how do we define those? And I want to give you answers to some of those things and how to defend it a little, okay? So stay with me. It's going to get heady. But I want you to know this so if a question gets posed, you know how to handle it to some degree. So first things first, you're saying that Jesus is God. How would I know this? How would I know? That's got to be a question, right? So this is where we're going to start. Lee Strobel and his work, Case for Christ. If you've seen the movie, you read the book, good stuff. What I want you to do, though, this is where he starts. His wife became a Christian. And he thought, he was an atheist, and he thought, I lost my wife. No more fun. Boo, 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 boo. He was upset. So what he wanted to do then was go and disprove Christianity. So what he does, he has a degree from Yale Law School. He was an investigative reporter for the Chicago, Chicago Tribune. There it is. And he knows how to ask questions. So he dives in and he's investigating. Because he's not investigating to prove Christianity. It's to disprove Christianity. So where he starts, we're going to start with that as well. All right? So the first question we have is, where's the evidence? Were they actually there? And what we want is eyewitnesses. In any case, we want an eyewitness. How many of you guys have kids? Your kids ever fight? Yeah, mine either. Well, that's done. No, your kids fight, and if it's like me, what I want to do is after they fight, and if I didn't see it, I separate them. Okay, tell me what happened. Eyewitness counts. I want to get it all together. And if it's not them, I'm going to go to the people outside of. Eyewitnesses matter in any case. 
So how many eyeballs were on this? Do we have good eyewitness testimony? If you wanted to, to lie and make up Christianity, the easiest thing you could do, wait till everybody's dead and then write about it. Who's gonna refute you? Right? So here, how many eyewitnesses? Well, let's start this way. Let's go with these first three. Matthew, John, and Peter, all disciples, and all wrote about Jesus. They lived with him. They walked and talked and ate with him. They know him well. So those two gospel accounts, Matthew and John, the other two gospels, well, and, and one I'm gonna leave off, let's go back for a second. So you have those three, Matthew, John, and who is the other one? Peter. The one I like the most is James, brother of Jesus, wrote the book of James. Can you imagine how difficult it would be to be the brother of Jesus? He didn't think he was the Messiah. Would you? Your brother. You know what convinced him? When Jesus comes back to life from the dead. Yeah, I think that convinced me too. So he became a staple in the church. So you have four eyewitnesses. Then if you go to John Mark or the book of Mark or Luke, John Mark was a close associate of Peter's. So when he writes his account, it's almost like he's listening to a sermon from Peter and writes it down. Okay, so you have good information. Luke, look at Luke's account, Luke 1, 1 through 4. This is what Luke says. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of things you have been taught." So Luke isn't the eyewitness. He was a traveling companion of Paul's and he tries to gather all these eyewitness accounts together. He's a doctor, he's a master historian from what others have said, and he's a master of the Greek language. He writes extremely well. If you look at his account, it's one of the more detailed and chronologically so. And he's writing it from that perspective. So you have all these eyewitness accounts to it. The last one I would say is Paul's account. Listen to what he says, this is in Corinthians. Again, you're looking for eyewitnesses. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says this, for what I receive, I pass on to you as of first importance. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, buried, raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then this, he appeared to Cephas, Peter, and then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Most are still living. He appeared to James, then the apostles, and then to me. Now, what you see with most cults, when most cults start up, usually it's God appears to one person. Let's go with Mormonism. God appeared to Joseph Smith, just him. And these golden plates came to just him. And he was the only one who could see and read and write about him, just him. That's how cults start. If it's only one person can see it, how can you disprove it? But here we're saying, God steps up. You have all these eyewitnesses, 500 at one time, still living, he mentions. So when you say how many eyeballs, you have a lot, okay? Don't miss that. The next question I would go to is not just the eyewitnesses, but let's hear what they're saying. What are the eyewitnesses, the, the accounts? Do they seem to line up? One of the arguments I have heard against this is that, look, your gospel writers, they don't mention the same thing. Let's say they put Jesus over here, or maybe he's down here. What, what's going on? I can't believe that. Should that worry us? I would say no. What would worry me is if every gospel writer said the exact same thing. Think about it this way. If you're going to a court trial case and you had eyewitnesses come up and they each said the exact thing word for word, would you believe it or not? Why? Why would you not believe it? 
Seems like it's doctored, right? If you're saying the exact same thing, seems like it's doctored. But when I have variants, and that's what you have with the Gospels, just little variants, not the big stuff, but the little stuff, I would imagine that would give it more truth because you're seeing it from your point of view and I'm seeing it from mine and here we are. So we should expect it to have some variety, and it does. Synoptic Gospels seem a little similar, but they're a little different. And then John's is different totally. Don't be surprised when you have the differences. So we see that, yeah, we have eyewitnesses. We see that their accounts seem to line up. How far then, this is the one, I just heard this over Thanksgiving. You can't trust the biblical accounts, this was the argument, because when they wrote them down, it was years after the event happened. How do we know it's accurate at all? How would you answer that question? Well, let's test the historical documents. Let's see how far away it really was. Okay, so if you, if you look at how far, first, uh, two things we need to know. Let's go with this one first. Um, don't, don't uh, how do you wanna say that? Don't take our cultural understanding and put it on theirs. Let me give you an example. I've seen this every, every uh, session so far. Let's see if it holds true, especially for you guys sitting in these two rows right here. How many of you guys can tell me, this is everybody, raise your hands, what your cell phone number is right now without looking? Good. How many of you can tell me your parents' cell phone number without looking? How about your grandparents without looking? And here we go. I can remember growing up, you had to memorize the phone number. Right? You had to memorize it. Why don't we memorize it now? Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I'm loving it. You don't have to. It's right here. And if I forget it, be like, yo, Siri. Oh, she just popped up. You get it. You don't have to memorize it. But I can remember as a kid, okay, what's that number? I remember. Some of you might have been like, yeah, operator, give, I'm not, I don't know that, but anyways. <laughs> Where's Claude? You back here, Claude, Dan? See you, no. So here it is, right? You had to keep, because that's your culture. You don't have to. I don't have to memorize that stuff, but that's not their culture. They didn't even have your printing press yet. They were an oral culture. That's how they passed it down. So when, you read the, when we read the verse from 1 Corinthians, that was the creed that had come about in the church. 1 Corinthians was written about 55 AD. Christ died about 33. So 22 years, in that amount of time, they had a creed come up in the church that everybody knew. It was an oral culture. How about even this? Go Jewish educational system. In elementary school, Jewish students would have to learn and memorize Memorize the first five books of the Bible. Let me ask, how many memory verses do you know? Eee. Don't ask me that question, right? And if they were good enough, they'd have to memorize the entire Old Testament. So you're saying they can't remember stuff? They can remember stuff better than I can. Don't put my culture on theirs. You gotta see it from their point of view. And the other argument I heard was this, telephone. You know how telephone works. So if I start right up here with you and you pass, I tell you a message, I whisper it, nobody hears. I'll turn the microphone off. And I whisper it and you pass it back, pass it back. When it gets to the end, it's totally different. And they'd say, that's kind of how it is with the writings. And I'd say, no, 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 no. In the game telephone, Leighton, I can only, it's only me, I, I would tell you the first and you can never come back and ask me again. But this is an oral culture. So if I forget it, I can go back to the original source and I hear it again and again and it comes up in conversation. And then if I forget, I can tell you and then be like, wait a second, talk to him. And then we can all come to an agreement. 
on what's going on. Now, here's what I would say, agreement, sorry, that's not a word, agreeance? That's not a word. Look that one up, right? Here's what I would also say. When they wrote these letters, so you have Corinthians was maybe 55, Luke could have been in the 50s, Mark even earlier, closer to, James 44, so 11 years. When they wrote these, it was in a crowd that still could have saw and witnessed it for themselves. For instance, if I said to you guys, I led worship these last three weeks at church and thousands came to know Christ. Thanks, Mark. (laughs) Buzz, not that guy. Why would you doubt it? Why? Because you were probably here and you probably saw the last three weeks that I did not lead and you would shut that argument down in no time, right? Same with these letters. As these letters are being passed, they would have been passed to people who would have been witnesses in that culture at that time. They could have shut it down right away. So when we say, how can we rely on those letters? Because of how close they were. So historians, and just to give you a reference on this, Alexander the Great has two historians that have have written into his accounts. When they wrote those, it was 400 years after Alexander. And yet authors and historians still say those are pretty dang accurate. So we're saying maybe 10 years 20 years away, that's pretty close. The accuracy is there. So we have eyewitnesses, it's accurate information. Last thing I really wanna go to is it mentions that he was the Messiah, right? Messiah had a lot of predictions about who he was gonna be. I said last thing, I got another one too. Um, But he said there's a lot of predictions. How many? One author said there was 3,000. Now I don't know about that. But Lee Strobel, in his book, Pace for Christ, he says, let me give you the odds of just eight. Let me, tell you, let me tell you some of them. He had to be born at a certain time to a certain woman in a certain way, from a certain line, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Right? From the line of David, Jesse's seed. You get the idea so far. How many of you guys got to control when and where you were born or to whom you were born? How many of you wish you could have? How about this one? Chose when he died, where he died, how he died, what they would do while he was dying, and then after he died, where he was buried, how he was buried, how he came back to life. How much of that do you have control over? For one person to fulfill eight of those prophecies, just eight, the odds are like this. If I took a silver dollar and marked it, and then took the entire state of Texas and filled it two feet high, full of silver dollars. I toss the coin in, I stir the entire state up, and then I take a man blindfolded, have him walk in, and on the first try, bend down and pick it up. That's the odds of one man fulfilling just eight. And I've got a list up here of 48. You know what one of my favorite ones is? Psalm 22. Written by, a psalm written by David. And it mentions in that psalm that he was gonna, his hands would be pierced and so would his feet. You know why I like that one? David was born around 1000 BC. 1000 BC. And he describes what crucifixion is gonna be like. You know when crucifixion was invented? I would say about six or 700 years after. Six or 700 years. It's not even been invented yet. So how can... It has to be God. Has to be. So now the next question I would have for the authors is prove to me it's God. How would I know? You're saying it's God in the flesh. How would we know it's God in the flesh? Well, if it was me writing firsthand accounts, I imagine I would be writing some things on there. I would be showing people some amazing things that God did, inexplicable among the rest of creation. 
And John lays out seven of them. Here they are. They're on the screen. Here's, here's the, the list. First one, and he says it in chapter two. Jesus turns water into wine at a wedding. Mark Lowry says, I love a God who keeps the party going. <laughs> Thanks, Bobby. Um, the healing of the efficient son, healing of the disabled man, feeding the 5,000. I love the last one. You brought a man back to life. That's pretty impressive, I think. All the gospel writers are trying to show his deity. Now, I think they, they mention humanity, but they were trying to convince us of his deity. Why? Because of those two gospel writers and the other ones who wrote. They walked with Jesus. I don't have to prove his humanity. I saw, I ate with the man. I watched him as he slept in the boat. I watched him as he cried at Lazarus' tomb. I watched him crucified and blood come out. I knew he was man. I got to convince you he was God. So don't miss that either. Now, what I would say, and this should be natural in a conversation, that's great. You've proven to me everything from a biblical point of view with biblical people. But if God really came in the flesh, his thumbprint should be outside of Christianity too. So are there other people outside who would verify the same things? And that's where we go next. Three historians I want to give you, three historians who mention this. First one, Josephus. Josephus, uh, born around AD 37, he wrote two things. Um, I'm going to give the first one more credit. This is Antiquities. The other one is Testimonium Flavinium. Don't get it anyways. Antiquities. Go that one. He mentions a few names that you would recognize if you knew the Christmas story. He writes about a guy named Ananias, about Festus, and then this one here, James, the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ. Now, that doesn't give us a ton of information, but it does put Jesus in a certain point in history. That's important. Outside evidence, people who do not, uh, do not believe. Let's go here. Next one, Tacitus. This one is by far my favorite. If you want any of them, write this one down. Tacitus, eighty one fifteen. He's writing about Nero and the persecution. If you remember Nero, Roman emperor, he set Rome on fire in AD 64 and blamed it on the Christians. And this is what Tacitus is saying during that time. He says, Christus, from whom the name Christian had its origin, he suffered the extreme penalty, crucifixion, during the reign of who? Tiberius. We've heard that name. At the hands of one of our procurators, who? Pontius Pilate. We've heard that name. So he's putting some play, people in place. Then get this. Thus, the movement of Christianity, thus checked for the moment, it broke out not only again in Judea, but then even in Rome. Let me ask you, why do you think the movement of Christianity stopped for a moment and then, for no explicable reason, started back up? What would you say? Could it be it stopped when Christ was crucified and then started and spread when he came back to life? Last one. Historian Thallus, Thallus, AD 52. He was writing an account of the Eastern Mediterranean history. We don't have his original documents, but we do have a reference from Julius Africinus. And I think it's AD 221. And it mentions this. It says, on the whole world, there pressed a most fearful darkness, and the rocks were rent by an earthquake. In many places, in Judea and other districts, were thrown down. This darkness, Dallas wrote in the third book of his history, calls, as appears to me, without reason, an eclipse of the sun. What happened at Jesus' crucifixion? The skies darkened, the earth shook. We have an explanation. They don't, and this is what they lean on. 
Isn't it interesting? You have, and there's more. There's a couple I've got up here. I'm not going to give them to you. You look it up yourself. Meh, 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 meh. <laughs> um, but here's what I would say is we have outside evidence and inside evidence. But my question to you and to your loved ones and those around you is what would it take to convince you? Hear me out. What would it take to convince you? What would it take to convince them, whoever that person is in your mind, what would it take to convince them? We should never be afraid of questions. If God is the author of all truth, questions should naturally lead to answers, and that means answers should lead to God. We should never be afraid of questions. I would caution you on this, though. Be smart about where you get your answers from. Don't be afraid of questions. Be smart about the answers you look for. What would it take to convince you we have Jesus. Next off, we have to say, what's the gift? John three sixteen. who's got it? For God so loved that he gave that whosoever believes in him shall not but have eternal life. You've heard it before and you can memorize it and say it. That's great. That is the gift. The gift is this God has come in the flesh. He died in my place. He took my sin on him and he restored my relationship with God. It's like I got the massive do-over. To kids, I usually explain it this way. If this gift was a blank check, not blank, nope, 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 <laughs> too much. Um, let's go. If this check was worth $10 million, had your name on it, would you want it? How many guys would want it? There we go. I'm surprised nobody raises their hand. It's not a hundred million going once, going twice, nobody wants it. Okay. But if it was $10 million, your name on it. Now, the question I have for you, I'm spitting like crazy, sorry. Um, <laughs> Is it yours? Yes, this means yes, this means no. Is it yours? It's not. Why is it not? Because it's sitting right here on the desk. In other words, if this check is for you and I believe it is, then you should come up and grab it. You should take it and deposit it into your account, correct? That's when it becomes yours. And I guarantee you this, if I had $10 million, it's gonna make me live a little bit different. And that's what I'd say exactly with the kingdom of God. The gift is here, but you have to choose to come and receive the gift. And then once you receive the gift, it should infect how you live. So have you received it? Have you taken part? Because I would say this, for anybody in this room, if you haven't done that, then I would ask you the question, what would it take to convince you? I've seen outside evidence. I've seen inside evidence. I've seen lives changed. What would it take to convince you? It's too important of a question to ignore. And I'd say that's what you need to wrestle with. The second part is I would say for you guys who are Christians is you gotta figure out who am I talking to about this. I wanna share with you a quote here. This is Lee Strobel's book, and this is towards the end of it, so spoilers. He says this, if Jesus is the son of God, his teachings are more than just good ideas from a wise teacher. They're divine insights on which I can confidently build my life. If Jesus sets the standard for morality, I can now have an unwavering foundation for my choices and decisions. If Jesus did rise from the dead, he's still alive today and available for me to encounter on a personal basis. If Jesus conquered death, he can open the door of eternal life for me, amen? If Jesus has divine power, he has the supernatural ability to guide me and help me and transform me. If Jesus personally knows what pain and suffering is like, he can comfort and encourage. If Jesus loves me, as he says, he has my best interest at heart. That means I have nothing to lose, everything to gain. If Jesus is who he claims to be, and remember, no leader of any other major religion has ever pretended to be God. 
If he is who he claims to be as my creator, he rightfully deserves my allegiance, obedience, and worship. For Lee Strobel, he looked then at John 1.12. And in John 1.12, it said this. How do I do this? It said, yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. In other words, you gotta believe it, you gotta receive it, and then you become it. And the question is, has you, have, you, have you done it? If, you, who, if you're already there, who are you talking to? I wanna end with this. You know it, but I'll say it. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled, joyful. All ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies with angelic hosts proclaim. Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark the herald angels sing. And glory to a newborn king. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for Jesus. May we be convinced and may we convince others. We have light and we cannot hide. Help us then, Lord, to share this with other people. Help us take it outside the walls. May our lives be drastically changed and may we change those we come in contact with. We love you. It's in your son's holy and precious name.